0: Welcome to the Rider Down Joe, with your
1: host, Steve Diamond.
0: If you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all.
1: And Larry Correa.
2: What you've just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought.
1: <laughs> Today's
0: episode, Tweet Bashing Part 5, Return of the Midwind. Everybody, welcome back to the Writer Dojo. Larry?
2: You may, they may have gotten a, a hint of what this episode is about.
0: N- perhaps. Perhaps. Now, you guys have been asking for it for, for a minute. Uh, there's... Every now and then, though, I, I do see there's a few people uh, on our Facebook group. And if you didn't know, we do have a Facebook group, Writer Dojo. Make sure you answer the freaking questions, though, to get in the group. <laughs> good grief.
2: It's, it's actually not that a hard. really good group.
0: And we have a staggeringly good group, actually. Um you, I mean, like 99% devoid of idiocy. Uh, and the people that are idiots, they tend to flounce away for no good reason. Okay. Today is, Larry, bad Twitter advice day.
2: Once again. I Once think this again. is the second or third t- third time we've done this. Third
0: or, uh, it might be third or fourth. We've done it a few times. Oh, okay. First, so prepare your eardrums, I was going to say, okay, prepare your eardrums. Prepare your... Um, prepare your car radios
2: because okay. i have bad twitter advice okay. I,
0: i'm i'm actually I, I have a control over volume <laughs> uh, i'm gonna adjust down for larry just a smidge okay uh-huh. um uh, we're gonna see if that works so i don't okay. you know cause a interstate pile up
2: well we just a dis- way back for those of you that are just joining us you have missed the previous episode of bad twitter writing advice we, for whatever reason, decided that the bad Twitter writing advice had a very specific sounding voice that I do.
0: So. Well, I, I, it's hard not to read some of these, some of these bad pieces of advice and not just in your own head, hear them, like hear the condescending screeching of their voice, of their voices as they give you terrible, terrible advice. Oh yeah, I mean, we have some terrible advice for you. So too. we have three pieces of terrible, terrible advice for you today. All right, I'm I'm, we're ready to go. Go for it, buddy.
2: So a little background first.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Context.
2: People are arguing on Twitter as usual. <gasps> I know. I'm sorry. X. They're arguing on X. Whatever. Whatever. And uh, so somebody says, "Hey, indie people, read a book written before 1980. Will you? Okay. So. Yeah.
0: Which? Eh. Well, we could get
2: into that. Whatever. But whatever. But so. here is
0: the. <laughs> here is the the. <laughs> The astronomically terrible advice.
2: This is from somebody who I will not name, who has novel editor in oh, her title. Oh, good, good. Here we go. Not really. For any author to be the most successful in writing a book readers will want, they should be reading books released in the last five years in their own genre. All books are great, but there's only so much time devoted to writing a book Current.
1: Uh, all
2: right, ladies and gentlemen, let's break this down okay. for you. Okay. Okay. Um, so, Miss Novel Editor. <sighs> so she, so to break that into actual, you know, pronounceable English, uh, so she says, "Not really. For an indie author to be successful, you need to read a, you need to be writing the books readers want, which means you should be reading books from the last five years in your own genre." See, this is silly. You don't have time to read old stuff, you know, more than five years ago, and you don't have time to read other genres. Yeah, this is just dumb. This um, is the stupidest advice you could possibly give to writers. Right. I mean, look. We'll break it down in depth here. Because this, when I saw this, I was like, it made my eye twitch. There there are so many angles
0: at which we can poke and prod and, you know, um, okay. drown this in a koi pond.
2: And and we've talked on the show a lot about influences, right? Yeah. And ideas.
0: I, okay. Okay. Who are some of your biggest influences, Larry? Louis L'Amour. Okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, Robert E. Howard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hell, Tom Clancy. How many of those as guys have put out a book in the
0: last five years? Uh, none. None, because
2: they're all dead. <laughs> I mean, most of them have been dead a really long time. But those are like, uh, some of my biggest influences. And like, I know Terry Brooks has written uh, books more recently, but like, the influential ones that for me are from the 1970s and 1980s. C.S. Lewis. Oh my gosh. He certainly hasn't been the last five years. Lloyd Alexander. Uh Tolkien. Tolkien. Uh, okay, good Stephen King novels. He, when, when did he quit doing cocaine?
0: Well, I think <laughs> in the early 90s.
2: Okay, see, that's when his books were still good, right? Yeah. Uh, influential, right? Yeah. Like, like, we got a lot out of those books. You know... Uh, and they're not even the same genres.
0: No, they're radically... I mean, Louis L'Amour to... Westerns. To Howard to Tolkien are three radically radically different. H.P. Genres. Lovecraft.
2: Here's the thing. I've been influenced by Lovecraft a lot. Do I write like Lovecraft? No. No, not at all. No, not at all. Not at all. Not even close. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been compared a lot to like, you know, Robert E. Howard stuff because of the two-fisted manly testosterone But
0: But you don't write like I him. I don't
2: write like Howard. No. I mean, the flavor definitely is influenced. I probably write more like Louis <laughs> Moore than any of them. Yeah. But he's a Western author. I've read a ton of thrillers. Okay, guys. Romances. I'm not a romance guy, but I know a lot of genre fiction authors who who are big fans of Georgette Heyer. Hmm. Huge Georgette, like Tony Weisskopf recommends Georgette Heyer for all. I'm just I'm not a romance guy, but she's like, you want to learn to write romance, you read Georgette Heyer. Yeah, guys, do not limit yourself to just whatever the hotness is right now. Well, and that that
0: I think that's the biggest issue. Well, one of the biggest issues I have with this bad piece of advice it's so the idea what she's implying he she whatever it um is implying is that whether whether this person realizes it or not they're implying that you should be chasing trends well she says i think it's like you need to write what readers want right now well by the time you finish writing it and get it published even if you're indie it, that fad's gone man well it's even worse because you
2: don't know what the next big thing is okay so for example we go back let's go back 17 years right uh so when i was writing monster hunter which has blown up huge i've sold millions of copies of monster hunter it's a very popular series i it's paid for my house okay
0: what is it called monster I'm hunter international oh, oh. for those of you yeah. who
2: are just joining us pretty popular series right yeah. And it's actually created trends that p- other people have chased. I've had a lot of people come on to the urban fantasy action adventure manly two-fisted action drama
0: uh, uh, genre from my stuff. Oh, I, d- I doubt the movie Bright would have been made today without your series. Oh, I
2: guarantee the people who, watched, who made Bright were fans because there was a lot of little Easter eggs in there who mm-hmm. were hat tips. But here's the kicker. 17 years ago, what was the hotness in urban fantasy? Uh, Twilight. Twilight. It was all Twilight, Twilight, Twilight. And everybody was cashing on sexy vampires and sexy whatever. Sure, sure. I mean,
0: her in in the more adult stuff that's a little bit better written, you got, you know, you got Laurel. Yeah, Laurel Hamilton. I mean, she was already massive at that point.
2: And and way better, by the way, too, because Laurel Is... is actually a good writer. And Jim was in there. Uh, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files. Now, wow. see, Dresden was one of the things. He was the
0: one that really, really, I yeah. feel personally. Dresden was new. He it paved is. ground.
2: Dresden broke huge ground for making urban fantasy something different than paranormal romance. Right. And there was other stuff in there before that that wasn't paranormal. I mean, going clear back to Misty Lackey, Serrated sure. Edge. In the, sure. what, 80s. Yep. So so there's been this stuff, but, but... Jim didn't chase trends. No, he wrote what he wanted to write. He wrote what he wanted. He wrote hard-boiled detective wizard, you know, in Chicago. And he had fun. I did. If I was chasing trends, I wouldn't have done what I did. But Monster You would have written more sexy mummies. I, oh yeah. So people ask me, what's the next big thing? I always answer sexy mummies. Yeah. Which was the first time I met Michael Haspel. He was like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Because he was already on it. No, but the thing is, so Monster Hunter, I was I wrote a throwback. So my monsters were evil, vicious, bloodthirsty, rip your face off. You know, if vampires were sexy. It was kind of like those angler fish with the lights on them, yeah. in the deep sea. It's they're just sexy just so they could eat you, right? right. They're horrible, and that's how I wrote it. And I went I went old school. I I, I went back to like. The stuff that I grew up on in the 80s. It was like it was like action, adventure, monsters. Let's blow the crap out of them. Let's blow them up. Let's have fun. That's what I did. And and the thing is, if I had just chased Twilight at the time, I would have just been one of the hundred other forgettable Twilight Chasers. Yep. So this advice, guys, is stupid. It, readers are readers become the best writers. Why do readers become writers? Because we read other stuff and we're like, wow, I like that. I want to do something cool like that or different. It
0: sparks an idea in your head. Yeah. So
2: I grew up reading Westerns, which, I mean, you actually can see those influences in how I write,
0: but I don't write Westerns. Yeah. I grew up reading Westerns and Agatha Christie. And you can definitely see both of those in my writing.
2: Yeah. So guys, influences are everywhere. Do not be this narrow pigeon because honestly guys what we talk about on the show too genre is an artificial construct is genre exists to sell books Mm -hmm. and and for marketing purposes. It doesn't actually exist for storytelling purposes. Yeah. You can break every genre convention and be wildly successful in your genre.
0: Well we we've talked about this before And, and me specifically um I get I get really, really geeked out and into the nuts and bolts on the elements of horror, right? Where I tell people I'm a horror writer. But how many horror novels have I actually written? None, not officially. Yeah,
2: you write. They're actually
0: thrillers. I, I write thrillers, uh, whether supernatural or otherwise, fantasy that's dark and twisty, like whatever whatever genre you're reading. Um, you, you and I, you and I geek out about uh, detective noir stuff all the freaking time. Oh yeah, you know, um, I, I've been unashamedly um, vocal about my love for Dashiell Hammett. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm a Raymond Chandler and a Raymond fan. And Raymond Chandler. Um, one, of my new, one of my new ones is a guy named uh, McDonald, uh, um, Ross McDonald, um, who Howard Andrew Jones turned me on to. You, when you read those things, those have very specific conventions in them as far as what they are doing in their genre, kind of that detective noir genre, right? But it's up to me to read those and say, okay, well, why do I like these so much? Oftentimes it's because of really cool, clever dialogue. It's the way of the, you know, we, we, we talked about this with, with Howard and we we talked about this with Casey at one point, the idea of the kind of the tarnished night uh, in terms of the detective, right? Well, nothing in any of that says that I can't take those cool concepts and apply it into another genre. Yeah. Um, and, and I and I do. I do all the freaking time. I mean, shoot. The... Um, okay, Servants of War, right? Fantasy. No one's going to argue that that's not fantasy.
2: Oh, straight up fantasy.
0: Crazy fantasy. Okay. The short story that I wrote in that world, which is in uh, your first noir anthology. It's a
2: hard-boiled detective story.
0: It's a hard-boiled detective story. Christoph, the super, super dirtbag. Secret, who, secret who, policeman. Who everybody loves is... It's, it's just a straight-up detective story. Yep. And, But it's in a fantasy world. Like, there are so many key elements within each of these genres that we're reading between horror or Western or whatever that we'd be foolish not to read those and see what, what makes them successful to us and then take those pieces and plug them in to other genres that we're writing, other stories that we're writing in, in order to tell the story we want to. Well, here's the thing
2: too. I'm going to go even further in the opposite direction here. Okay. And she says, like, read what's popular in your genre right now because you don't have time. I specifically do not read my own genres right now. I don't... Like, the guys are like the new hotness right now. I don't know what they write. No. I mean, every now and then I'll read uh, somebody's book usually because I know them. Um, but for the most part, I don't read uh, stuff that's similar to what I write.
0: Yeah.
2: I don't want to be too influenced. Well, partly is I don't want to be too influenced. And the other part is, uh, when you talk about lack of time, I don't have time. Um, but the thing is also it's like work. Yeah. And when I want to read, I don't want to work. And a lot of times my brain goes to edit mode. Yeah. Which is not fun. And if it's good, I'm like, Oh, that's clever. I see what you did there. And I start to deconstruct it or, I read it and I'm like, oh, this could be better. And I start editing the book that I'm reading. Yeah. So, so honestly, this advice is stupid and idiotic on like 10 different levels.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I I get the, the only piece of advice in there or the only statement made within there that is accurate is that you have very little time and that's true.
2: Yeah, that's true. I
0: mean, I have.
2: But most of us also read for twenty something years before we try to write anything. That's true.
0: No, that's true. You know, I mean, I have three novels sitting on my computer that I need to read. Um, two of them for quotes, and one just because I really, really want to read oh, this dude, book. I
2: owe so many people. I owe so. I, owe I know. So many I owe
0: two quotes right now. Oh, God, um, I don't even know. I would have to look. And then, and then I have Howard Andrew Jones's first book just sitting here. I know. I'm I like, really want to read Danny that. Danny, I need to read this. Ugh. So. Again, this comes down to, okay, there's books I need to read for quotes. That's, that's kind of sort of work. Okay. I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. Uh, especially when I like the book. Um, but the other one is if I'm going to read for fun, I'm not targeting genre. I'm targeting person. Yeah. You know, like, read. like us like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll read your next one because yes. I mean, it's you
2: guys read broadly. That's what I think. And you're going to learn stuff from all sorts of, even especially if it's not your genre. There's going to be stuff out there that you're like, wow, okay, that's really neat what they did there. How can I put that on a rocket ship?
0: Yeah. You know? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I mean, again, talking about, you know, the Chandlers and the Hammets and and stuff like that. Um, You know, we read those things. We love those things. And then, of course, you and I always have these conversations. It's like, how do we do that in space? Well,
2: Lost Planet Homicide. Exactly. You know, Space Bosch.
0: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> or space Luther.
0: Yeah. You know? Or for me, uh, I, I, I put out this story in, um, uh, in uh, Racketeer Press's uh, noir, uh, Pin Up Noir, and it's, that story's called No Stars in Red Light City. It's that on a cyberpunk planet. It's totally cyberpunk. Yeah. But they, the conventions don't change. You know what I mean? Good idea and good technique is everywhere. Okay. So, um, no country for old men. You and I agree. Really, really cool. Really, really cool. The thing is that story, because of the, the very specific baseline kind of conventions it's using, it could have been old west, um, modern day as it was then. Although it kind of felt like dirty eighties.
2: Well, I think it's like 1980 or 1979. Yeah. Cause it, they, in the scene with the quarter, he says, yeah, wait, you can tell what you... so this quarter rode 28 years to be here or whatever. I can't yeah.
0: remember. Yeah. Um, we could have set that in a fantasy world. We could have set it on a space station. Um, it, because of how good the ideas in the story are, the, the genre is kind of irrelevant. Stories are stories. Good stories are good stories.
2: Well, don't we talk about like uh, the classic samurai stories oh. that get reused over and over and over Gosh. And as to Westerns, as to hardboiled, as to action flicks. Oh. You know, same thing. Same yeah. exact principle. Exactly. All
0: right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we've still got two more for you. We'll be right back. Uh, prepare your ears.
1: Los Angeles. The 1970s, disco is king, and the nightclubs are full of young, beautiful people with Saturday night fever. From the Sunset Strip to Hollywood Boulevard, a new era is dawning, but below the glitz and glamour, a terrifying darkness lurks. Chloe Mendoza knows darkness. She is a Nahuali, a half-demon created by the gods of Central and South America, a child of the Court of Feathers, a group of demigods who ruled Mesoamerica with a bloody fist before the arrival of the Spanish. Now, she is a member of Monster Hunter International's newest team. Business is booming in the City of Angels. But soon, Chloe gets a message from the Court of Feathers, warning her of a mysterious dark master who is building up its power in the region. Whatever it is, it brings death and carnage with it. Time to boogie. On sale now, set in Larry Correa's best-selling Monster Hunter International series, comes the electronic advanced reader copy of Monster Hunter Memoir's Fever by Larry Correa and Jason Cordova. Exclusively from Bane Books. Hardcover available in October 2023 anywhere Bane Books are sold.
0: All right, everybody. Welcome back. Um, Okay. So first half of the episode, we, yeah, we, we ranted about that one because it was just idiotic. We went off on that. But, one. but hey, look, we still got two more for you. I went off on that one on Twitter too. Yeah. Okay. Here's, right. here's the next one. From
2: um, somebody who has a whole bunch of emojis in their name. Oh, that, that's always a good sign. Always a good sign. I mostly only read novels that made the New York Times best-selling list. My thinking is that novels that didn't make the list are examples of what not to do to be a successful writer. Hashtag writing community!
0: Yeah. Anytime you end with a hashtag writing community. (laughs) Sorry.
2: When me and Steve need to find these bad ones, we just go out, we put in hashtag writing community and we find like an
0: endless stream of the dumbest crap you've ever heard. Well, you only see two things, really. It's either bad advice or people shilling their how to write better books.
2: Yeah. As people who's like how to be a millionaire. How to write good. Books. (laughs) books <laughs> G-U-D. how to write good no and it's funny too because a lot of these people like they're we like
0: should to- we should to- we should totally put together a farcical book that says how
2: to write good GUD how to write gooder for monies but <laughs> but like they all have like their their how to write good book and they're like how to be a millionaire bestseller and you look them up on Amazon and they like wrote they've one seen book three and a half copies 13
0: years ago it has it has a negative two-star review
2: yeah so let's break this down from uh, <sighs> name and numbers here Okay, so she only reads novels that make the New York Times best-selling list. Oh, ter- and I'd like to... Terrific, terrific s- she calls it the New York Times best-selling list, as one does. My thinking is that novels that didn't make the list are examples of what not to do to be a successful writer. Okay, oh, so my boy. response, which is not all here on the screen cap, but is... <laughs> You have zero understanding of how the New York Times list actually works or how it's supposedly calculated even before they put their thumb on the scale and life for their friends, or that it is a measure of velocity rather than total sales. You also have zero graph to how the market actually, and it cuts off there because I go on this giant rant. Yeah. Well, I mean,
0: it was, it was several, <laughs> it was several tweets long.
2: So let me explain here, guys. Are there still tweets? Uh, X's? Several X's? <laughs> I don't know. I like Elon for the spaceships. All the other stuff I like. Whatever.
0: I like the flamethrowers too.
2: I do have I do own some Tesla stock. Yeah. Um, mostly because I thought it'd be fun. I'm not gonna drive an electric car. I live in the woods. Okay, so <laughs> um here's the thing with this. If you only read best-selling books because you think that teaches you how to be a best-selling author, wrong. Because first off, guys, we've talked about this in the show before. The New York Times list is rigged. Yeah. It is
0: straight up. Rig. Okay, it is let, fake let's, news. Let, let's talk. Let's expound on that because I know, at the last couple conventions we've been to, um, we've had a number of people who are new authors or are new listeners. Excuse me to the show, Um, and they're still catching up. So maybe they haven't heard. Right. This. Okay. So
2: guys, I am a New York Times bestseller, and right. they can never take that from me. And they would if they could. <laughs> they would try. <laughs> They've. Tried, they would believe me. So the way the New York Times bestseller list works in theory, is this is the list of the best-selling books in the country. Well, that's what it says. Fiction and nonfiction. That's what the title says, Larry. It's not. What it is is it's officially a curated list. A curated list means that it's whatever they want it to be, and it quite literally is whatever they want it to be. And we have flat-up, because there are other more accurate lists that go through and do actually, like Nielsen book scan goes out and actually i think it's something like 70% of the booksellers report to nielsen yeah. and say we sold x number of copies of this book this week right even the nielsen doesn't account for audiobooks nielsen doesn't account for ebooks so nielsen is, even the most accurate is only taking into account like a quarter of the total market yeah. right so right off the bat even your most accurate bestseller lists are not accurate there is nothing that ki- cu- that that collects everything there's nothing.
0: No, nothing exists.
2: And and like there's the Amazon bestseller list, but Amazon bestseller lists are an algorithm that's very time-based. Yeah,
0: it's it's books sold within a period of time rather than totals.
2: And that's another thing too you guys need to read about the New York Times list. Even if the New York Times list was accurate, it is not a calculation of total sales. It's a calculation of velocity. And what I mean by velocity, sales velocity, it's what you sold this week. So let's say that you have a book that came out and you sold 5,000 copies in the first week and you sold zero for the rest of the year. Okay, you sold 5,000 bucks. Great. But you sold 5,000 books total. Let's say another book comes out and it sold 1,000 books the first week and then sold 1,000 books every week for the next 52 weeks. That sold 52,000 copies. I was
0: say one of those is better than the
2: other. Yeah, well, that's much, much better. That's you know, order of magnitude better. Here's the thing. The second one's never been a bestseller. No. It, it, because it won't hit any lists it won't hit any lists because what happens is how much you sold at once in that time so anything that's a slow burn won't make the list uh but here's the thing with the new york it doesn't Times. doesn't even it doesn't, even it doesn't matter burn, yeah because in real life what happens is the new york times takes people who it likes and it boosts them up and it takes people who they don't like and it moves them down or off oh it just ignores them or ignores them so so give you guys an idea so i've made it a couple times and it was towards the beginning of my career
0: yeah it was on vendetta and alpha right
2: uh i think vendetta alpha uh, uh did legion i don't remember
0: i don't know it was early Monster i know Hunter. i know vendetta and alpha for sure
2: yeah so i've made it two three times i don't know yeah. so whatever so so i became a new york times bestselling author. Whoop whoopty freaking do i still put it on my bio or whatever just because To the rank and file normie like morons on twitter they think it means something Yeah. It's utterly as crap. So here's what happened. My sales have continued to go up, guys. My book sales are better than they were then. So my velocity is far better. So it used to be like I'd have a paperback come out and it would sell 5,000 copies. Uh, Now I will do more. And I knew I was. what happened is back those days, they didn't know me. I was just some dude selling books. Once they knew who I was and what I stood for, I never made it again. And I know for a fact that I've had other books come along that were crushing everything else on the New York Times list. Like, I believe Monster Hunter Nemesis was one of the best releases I ever... It was fantastic, right? Yeah. It blew up huge. And um, at that point, when it didn't make the list at all, I was like, yeah, I'm out. And even though, like, on BookScan, I was comparing myself to the, like, the other top ten bestsellers in the country, and I was beating, like, seven of them. Yeah. You know? It's rigged, guys. Uh, like, with my gun book, which is nonfiction... And nonfiction numbers are, are different than fiction numbers, but it should have made it easily. Just off of what I sold on Amazon. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But the thing is, the New York Times is a curated list, and it's actually been sued repeatedly well, for I mean, this.
0: You know it's pretty bad when when the guy who's been the perennial number one uh, best James seller, Patterson. J- bestseller on New York Times, James Patterson, where he's like, wait, what? So James Patterson has like <laughs> 28 number one...
2: Bestsellers, yeah, yeah, it's Something ridiculous, astronomical. So James Patterson, who plays poker with Castle, okay, we're talking yeah. that level of author. He's like a yeah. list. Um, James Patterson has come out and said that the New York Times list is utterly and completely bunk. Well, and he hates it. Yeah, he, he's like, well, this is stupid. He it's, like, it's just funny because because <laughs> he's been like profiting off it for the last thirty years, and we and we've all been saying it's crap, and then he realizes it's crap, and now it's like, oh, this is a revelation. But I did say, like, welcome to the club, James. I'm glad yeah, to have you. Yeah, yeah. Because it's crap, guys. We'll show you to your seat. It's rigged. <laughs> it's completely totally. And in fact, there's some people who just they have our name on a post it note on the wall saying "f this guy." Yeah. Um, and in nonfiction, it's way more obvious, and they've been busted to like some so, going to, to some absurd extents to keep conservative authors off there because you know hate to break it to you guys, but the New York Times is a little bo- a little biased towards the left. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't been paying attention. No, so it's rigged. So here's the thing. If you are an aspiring author are basing your idea on, like, what you think is good career stuff, the New York Times is, like, the last place you want to
0: look. Well, you can't – okay, you can't base a career, you can't plan for something that is um, random in that regard. Well, like based you don't upon know. the whims of the people in one office. Yeah. Uh,
2: and it's also weird, too, because a lot of the stuff that will make the New York Times list – uh, is very swung towards, like, we joke about the Oprah book club. I was going to say, it's, it's the Oprah books. Oprah book club. It's Oprah books. And what I mean by Oprah books is um, Oprah Winfrey, back when she had, like, 60 million regular viewers or whatever, astronomical, she'd be like, this is my favorite book. You should all go buy it. And everybody and so wouldn't go buy did. it. It could be a total piece of crap. It could be completely plagiarized. It could be totally, like, a true story that's utterly fabricated. I think we've seen all this with Oprah book club. Yeah, that was called A Million Little Pieces. Yeah, but it didn't matter. Yeah, because when somebody that big and powerful and influential says, "Hey, y'all go buy this book," guess what? It's now a bestseller. Hey,
0: I would love for Oprah to be like, "That Steve Donmans wrote a great book. You should all buy it." And then they yeah, all do. That'd I be mean, wonderful.
2: Oprah probably hate my guts, but if Oprah wanted to tweet, "I love Larry Krier novels." Hey, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Here's the thing, guys, because but you can't gamble upon some big influential person. Saying, yeah. and, and and this is, and that's in like that microcosm of people who all believe and think and say the same things and all the puffery to each other that they want to hear. If you are outside of that group, the odds of you getting that kind of thing is slimmed down. And a little dirty secret of the conservative side of the fence is they don't plug anything. Like they, they are the most... They'll sit there and they'll tweet and tweet and tweet about, oh, we're losing the culture war. And then the guys like me and all these cartoonists and – How
0: come there's no there's no conservative content creators out there?
2: And we're like, uh, what do we – so Hey, you, hold on. Hey, <laughs> hey, you got like, you know, 800 million followers. Why don't you say, hey, go, you know, check out these – no, they never do. No. I mean, if you want to advertise with them, they're happy to take your money. Well, yeah. You know, but the other side has this entire ecosystem of promotion. Yeah. And our side is just like this insular no, which is really funny, too, because conservatives aren't supposed to be the collectivists that think if you took a dollar, if you made a dollar, you took a dollar from me. Yeah. Instead, what we see is we've got cartoonists out there like G Prime, uh-huh. you know, and uh, they'll, they'll put up a brilliant cartoon. And like these big monetized accounts will take their cartoon and share it, but not give any, they'll just, they'll just repost it. Yeah. They won't link it. They won't put the author it's like, hey, here's the here's the cartoonist with his Patreon who would like to get paid for his work. No, they just they just sure, and they get money off it. It's the dumbest thing. That diverges off the bad advice, but guys, it's rigged. The whole system is rigged. It's bullcrap. We've talked on the show a million times about how to actually make money at this. Find the audience for your stuff and make them
0: happy. Well, and 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 as we've discussed before, awards and lists are not the end all, be all. Um, qualification for what is quality? Yeah, well, remember Mike Rose's mom
2: book? So Mike Rose's mom beat the number one New York Times bestseller that week by like what was it, like twenty eight thousand copies or something. Yeah, and I think they squeaked her in at like number nineteen.
0: Yeah, it was stupid <laughs>
2: or whatever.
0: She crushed
2: everyone. Uh, Ted Cruz wrote a book. I remember several years ago. Ted Cruz had a book, and he was like number one on Nielsen for like three weeks in a row. And before the New York times was so embarrassed that they finally had to put him on there and they put him on there like number three. Yeah. It's rigged. The whole thing is rigged guys.
0: Yeah. Don't again, just like we said earlier, don't take, don't chase trends. Don't chase lists. Just write your book. All right. We have time for one more, Larry. We do. And this one, uh, this one I found because of our buddy Rick Partlow.
2: We like, we like Rick. Rick is a good dude. We're going to have him on the show one of these days. Alright. Okay. One of the most popular pieces of writing advice goes like this. Colon. Take two wildly divergent concepts. Smash them together and make your own thing. Sounds good, doesn't it? And yet, the end product is usually something so offensive only Westerners would write and enjoy them. Here's Rick Partlow's response, who will get manly Twitter voice. Rick, this is for you. Wow. That may be the stupidest take I've heard in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's because Rick is based. No, okay. (laughs) That's because Rick's a good
0: dude. Um, Yeah, this is is so stupid, Larry. I I mean, the idea... (laughs)
1: Okay, okay, okay. Okay, go, go. There, there, let's, there's, there's, let's, oh, let's read it. Oh read it. Let's read it in the okay, rationale. There, there's voice. so
2: much here. All right. So it's one of the most popular advices in writing it goes like this take two wildly divergent concepts, smash them together, and make your own thing. Because first off, I don't know if that's that common of advice. Sounds good, doesn't it? And yet the end product is usually something so offensive, only Westerners would write and enjoy them. Seems awfully racist. It really does. Okay, but let's there's some logical fallacies in here, I think.
0: Well, the the okay. If if you take two crazy ideas and mash them together, could they suck? Sure. Yes. Could they be awesome? Yes. Sure. But that's not what this person is saying.
2: No, it's all in the Okay, so that in that first bit, which I honestly I don't know if that's that common writing advice because the same hashtag writing community people are over there telling you only write the same stale boring crap. Yeah, you're, and, you're from not the New York Times, right? Yeah. If you're gonna mix and match weird cross genres, mush together, you know, smash up like the game. Remember the game Smash Up? Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. If you wanna put if oh yeah you got Smash That's Up right. okay. Yeah. If you wanna put ninjas in your 1930 magical ninjas in your 1930s dust bowl the hard-boiled detective thing
0: you can make that work if you want to do weird trench warfare in the middle of a fantasy world
2: you can can totally
0: do that if you want to take
2: pokemon and the lost roman legion yeah and put them together you can
0: make that work if you want to take i don't know um cthulhu and vampirism and max and mash that together you can totally do that
2: if you guys aren't well read, we were just talking about Larry Korea novels, Steve Diamond novels, Jim, Jim Butcher no- novels, and Brian Lumley novels. novels. Yeah, um, I mean, guys, so mashing two different things together can work if you s- do it. It's just it's just a tool in the toolbox.
0: I was on a panel with Lee Modis at once. I, I might have shared this story before, but I'm going to share it again. And it was about this. It was about it was about mashing up different ideas. Yeah. Um, Lee and I are on there. It was one of the very first panels i I'd, I'd ever been on with Lee. Good dude, um, very, great great guy, very intelligent man. I haven't seen him forever. I haven't either. Hope he's doing all right. Um, but uh, we were talking about this, and, and the idea was basically, well, look, I mean, just just make them cool together, and you're fine. Yeah. Well, some guy came to the to the to the panel late, which is always a bad sign, and then sat down late, uh, and on on the panel itself, and then started, you know, spouting off his advice late. About, about all this. And what he said was, oh, well, if you're going to do this, it's very difficult. And what you have to do is take the two diagrams, the two circles of their ideas, and overlay them like a Venn diagram, and you're only allowed to use the things that they have in common. And These I got it. People. I got the microphone. I just looked at him and I went, I, I no, no, that, that, that's not, that doesn't work. And I Hand it to Lee, and Lee just goes, You can do anything you want, but no one will care if you write like crap. Like, but he was talking to the guy, and, Lee's written like and I'm like
2: 70 novels,
0: he's probably at 80 now. Yeah, um, point is, you can do what you want, yeah. It's okay. Um, I mean, on the surface, when it's, you when this... you spout it out, like Roman Legion, lost Roman Legion, and Pokemon sounds horrible, you're just like no no jim, and Butch- yet, jim butcher makes it work jim butcher's awesome
2: yeah you know he he he, he and, and now he's doing steampunk sky pirates um
0: with crystals and stuff oh, i mean and heck, and honor, Har-
2: honor harrington is you know golden age of sales novels in space yeah i mean straight up guys it's so that th- this, this okay so the first part is stupid second part though is where it gets weird um and the end product is usually something so offensive. Offensive. See, I, I don't which, get that. Like, Which is a bizarre description.
0: I mean, if off- you want to say, if you want to say it could turn out to be garbage. Sure. That's one thing. But to say it's offensive, that's such a, that's a very specific word choice. Well, and then the next part is only Westerners <laughs> would write and enjoy them. Uh. Well, you know what? Um, well, I if, hate to if, break it to if, you, but only, If only Westerners will will read and enjoy my books, well, there's several hundred million of them. Okay, um, so... I think I'll take that audience.
2: Here's the thing, guys. Um, you are probably not writing for a global audience no matter what. Very few of us are getting translated into that many languages. Like, like, even me, I think I've been translating like seven languages total, right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 that's it. the vast overwhelming majority of my income comes from <gasps> America, where I live, yeah, well, I mean where i where I know the culture and the language and, and and
0: of the people. All you have to do is look at the actual national regional sales to know that English speaking is the top book market in the world by a margin, which is funny because I've sold a lot of books in India. In English. <laughs> in English,
2: in English, in choosing a mashup that people declared was offensive to Indians, I'm and sure. it's a bestseller
0: in India. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it was like when uh, it was like when they made the movie uh, Ghost in the Shell. with oh, yeah. uh, that was Scarlett Johansson. Everybody's all offended. Everyone in the U.S. was offended. Yeah. Well. The, the three, you know, like the, the seven people who weren't going to go see the movie anyway. And they had rainbow
2: hair and nose yeah. rings and they were very upset. Um,
0: and then you ask the same question to the folks in Japan and they're like, oh, Scarlett Johansson's really pretty. This is cool. Well, plus
2: the major, the major was an android. It wasn't her original body anyway.
0: She wasn't, it, it's not a Japanese body anyway. Yeah. I mean, she was, it was a, actually a white body.
2: Yeah. She was a pleasure
0: bot. Uh huh.
2: So, I mean, they, so they were
0: completely wrong.
2: They didn't actually watch Ghost in the Shell to get offended to begin no. with. No, no. So the whole Western thing, okay, so that's a weird thing because very few of us are actually, so let's, so, so let's say, let's divide the world up here. Very few of us are translated into Asian languages. Very no. few Western authors anyway.
0: They're, they're a wildly different market and taste. There are
2: some. Um, I know Brandon Sanderson got translated into, well, I mean, he's Brandon. Yeah. Uh, his, his Taiwan sales are astronomical. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, he he like and he was telling me like like he he when he was starting out when he got a, he got a Taiwan translation deal it was huge money for him, hey bravo! I almost did for horror magic that didn't fall, I fell through I was, that was sad because I actually really liked noir uh-huh. and so I was like fingers crossed that'd be cool, but very few of us get Asian translations. No. I know I know a guy who uh, um, he, he's a foreign agent who specifically that's what he does he takes Western books and he sells them in Asian markets. Oh, interesting. uh it, it's not a huge thing.
0: I got to imagine it's really hard. Um, I, I was talking with Rothman about this as far as like translating work. Um, c- cause you know, like new Arcadia just came out in Germany and I think France Yeah, Germany is Germany's
2: sort of... where but Germany and France are still Western
0: world. Right? They are. So, <laughs> but, but the, my, my point here is that when you're doing translations and stuff, whether you're translating, um, that way or you're translating stuff from those cultures and going, coming our, our, our way. It's you're not just translating the words, you're translating context and tone. Oh yeah. And that's Makes really sense. hard. In fact, there there's a there was an author. Um he's a horror author. His name's Thomas something. It's it's like old Huveliad or something. I don't know how to pronounce no it. Idea. Again, we've established that none of us know how to pronounce anything. Yeah, repeatedly. Um, <laughs> but the book was called Hex. Um, It was stunningly popular in his world. I think he's like German or Finnish or something like that. Um, But uh, when they translated it into English, they didn't just translate the words. They actually translated it um, contextually and geographically. So they took it, instead of it being like a a small Finnish town, they took it and it's an old New England town now. Um, There's so many things that go into this. And, And I'm... I'm, I'm almost ignoring completely what this guy is saying because
2: his, his, his,
0: what he's saying is just pure idiocy in terms of being offensive and only Westerners look at, it's like, no, no, no. Um, it's actually, it's actually really hard to, to make sure that, that things translate correctly across the board.
2: Well, like well, I'll get questions. Um, like, I, I do really, really, really good in the Czech Republic. Uh-huh. Like I, I'm, am a superstar in the Czech Republic. Yeah. Problem is, Czech, the entire Czech Republic has a population of, like one U.S. state. Okay, and not a not a big one, right? Yeah. So it's 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 not that big of a market. But I love the Czechs, and the Czech sense of humor goes along with my sense of humor like perfectly. Right. but but I will every time they translate one of my books, the translator who's a great guy and a writer um, will will. will He'll email me. He's like, "Hey, this saying here, we don't have an equivalent." What does this mean? Or, because or, or he, he's actually really good at keeping up on American idioms and stuff, but he will be like, "Okay, so we have this, which is check for this." He's, well, all that kind of like, yeah, that, you know? But sure. it, it's that kind of thing, because um, there's these, there's these, there's these jumps, and so this thing about right for Westerners, it's like, yeah, if you're a Westerner.
0: Congratulations! You're writing for a Western audience. Well, how am I, how am I supposed to write for an Eastern audience?
2: Which is the funny thing, which is I have been successful with an Eastern audience, but I wrote as a Westerner because guess what? The story stuff was tra- it trans it comes across
0: just fine. The actual epic adventure stuff comes That's, across just fine. I watch I watch a lot of. Um... I actually watch a lot of like Korean dramas. Well, you know, I watch more foreign movies than I watch American movies. you you and I both, especially, especially Korean and, and I still think
2: man from nowhere is the greatest film of all time. (laughs) It's such a good movie. Son of the Black Sword would not exist if it wasn't for man from nowhere.
0: But I, I, I watch a lot of these, um, these, these Korean dramas and stuff, right? Because, uh, part of it is because they, they're not allowed to do a lot when they're directly out of Korea. Um, in there, there's a sense of censorship that they have um which I don't personally agree with however the unintended benefit of this is that they have to focus really really strongly on dialogue and character yeah because they're not like HBO that's like just trying to slap a naked person on it to for shock value yeah. right to make you forget that they're they're acting and their story sucks so I'm watching a lot of these things and it's really easy to tell it's like oh okay that, that must be humorous in that country. Well,
2: every now and then there's a contextual thing. A lot of that. Yep. That, that you just don't get. Okay. And, and, and I like that they lump Western world together because the Western world doesn't share all the context stuff.
0: Dude. Okay. You, Dude. You know the much, U.S. If we, I mean. Yeah, that's true. California versus Utah versus Texas versus Alabama versus well, Florida. Like like watch, on, watch man. every
2: time Hollywood portrays Utah. Oh yeah. We're a bunch you, of backwards. You know, with our butter churning dresses. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mine's in the closet. Though. Well, see, the question. Okay, we both love Luther. Okay, great show, BBC show, starring the I, super awesome.
0: I know where you're you going know exactly with this one. I know where you're going with this There's one. a scene. There's this is a season one. This is season one.
2: Uh, is it with the uh, the hammer and the hammer uh-huh. murderer? Yeah. Okay, so this is this dude. Or maybe okay. season two. I think it's season two. So he's got a squirt gun filled with acid and a claw hammer. Yep. And he goes into a place and he starts murdering people. So he squirts him in the face with acid and then brains him with a claw hammer. Yep. Okay, and he walks into like this workplace where there's like 500 people working, and 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 he starts killing people, and they all run outside screaming. Yeah, and 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 the police have to come save him. And I remember watching this, and I was mo- like, in most
0: cities in America, that dude would have been taken down real quick.
2: Yeah, even even in the most disarmed cities in America, like we're we're because like as a gun guy. Okay, if you try that in Utah, you're getting shot 357 times and it's going to be a
0: race. Well done. Let's see what you do <laughs> with the see number who there.
2: shoots you first. Yeah. He's got a claw hammer, okay? Yeah. And, and and an acid. And and the thing is but but in Luther, it was like it was like and so I don't know if I don't know if this is actually accurate for the for England. I've only been to England once, I'm not I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. Um but to have like 100 people run from a dude with a claw hammer? I mean, there's no place in America. The most Berkeley. In
0: Berkeley, somebody would have threw hands. Okay. Well, I mean, one, they probably would have been naked and two, they would have thrown a bike at him or something.
2: <laughs> yeah. Something. Yeah. But I'm like, really? Britain? Is that, is that a thing? I mean, I don't remember, I love Luther. Brilliant show. That show's amazing. But that scene, I was like, it was so, as an American, I was like, really? No, yeah. That, that's your artistic choice. Nobody, nobody's okay. like, n- not a single dude took his shirt off and said, you know, F-U-I Millwall and
0: charged. Well, you know, or, <laughs> or, like threw a printer at him or something. Like, yeah. I, I. There, there's so many things like this, right? That that there's so many differences between various countries, various states, freaking various cities. Um, you know, the Western world, uh, are you telling me that that's something that it's all the same between the United States and Latin America? Honestly,
2: the whole lump and junk, there's this thing on the left, and this is getting beyond the scope of our show, Talk About Writing, but there, there, this isn't a psychology here. There's this thing on the left where they want to take what's actually a wildly diverse thing. And they like to put them into buckets. Yeah. Easily manageable. Like, like they then say the black community. Dude, the black community is very, 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 very different. It's made up of millions of individuals. Well, I mean, the, the Hispanic community.
0: Okay. Dude, dude,
2: dude, they put me in there.
0: Well, I've lived there.
2: I'm Portuguese.
0: I've lived there. They put me they, in that uh, bucket. They, uh, most of those people are offended if you, if you, lump like Mexico and Guatemala together
2: yeah by a bunch of people who call call everybody Latinx anyway which is like a complete spit in the face of the entire language for the last 5,000 years no
0: one who speaks Spanish
2: actually says no that. nobody says that the, the one the one Mexican dude that says Latinx is trying to bang a uh, liberal chick from Berkeley probably yeah <laughs> probably it just no one does that and so they they take this in the western world okay unless we are talking about like some global geopolitical concept like the cold war that's crap yeah this is crap because france is a foreign country california is a foreign country (laughs) okay america is 50 foreign countries with 300 different cultures at least okay And and, and we need to recognize that. So this whole like, like mandatory, you this and that, and this and that, and you can only write this and this is, this is offensive to, now shut up. Just shut up.
0: Yeah. It's just stupid. I mean, we, we keep talking about this and this is, this guy's attitude in this tweet, X tweet thing, whatever, whatever is, this is one of those people that we're talking about when we, when we had our episode, don't negotiate with terrorists.
2: Exactly. Because you declare something offensive and then say it's not good. Okay, so one of my favorite directors, and I, I'm probably going to say his last name wrong, uh, Takeshi Mike uh, Yeah. M-I-I-K-E. Yeah. Uh, Japanese. Yeah. Wildly multi... You want to talk about mashing up genre concepts? Yeah. This dude, he will go and he will make a movie that is a beautiful, touching drama. And the next one is like vampire dude in a frog suit fighting mobsters. <laughs> I'm desert he he is like and then disgusting horror movie like disgusting horror movie and then back to classical drama yep in the dude fl- and he will mix and match and flip and he did uh, 13 assassins one yep. of my favorite movies of all good. time
0: and then and then uh Kitty. Uh,
2: dude he's so freaking good that one, did he do harakiri
0: yeah he did oh, I didn't realize those, that. Two, those two those I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure they're wildly diverging movies
2: yeah and so you got this guy who who is in, he it that's not the western world so so apparently the Eastern world is violating this. Yeah. How, how dare you mash up genres? Because Takishe is taking two... I mean, like I said, vampire frog dude. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. Freaking kung fu fighting the Yakuza. I, I mean, it's crazy crap like that. Yeah. Uh, and then... And, and, but it's okay. Because it's all... Com- the storytelling... The, the basics of heroic storytelling and dramatic storytelling are, are universal.
0: I, I, I was watching a show called The Uncanny Counter on Netflix. It's Korean, right? Um it's about uh these dudes who get possessed by the dudes and girls who get possessed by these ghosts that help them hunt down rogue demons who've possessed other things, but they own a noodle shop. <laughs> and like and it's comedy, right? Like like I keep I keep telling people I'm like I'm like this is basically like the Korean version of Dead Like Me. Yeah. And None of that should go together, and yet it was really I I enjoyed it. I had fun. Like it's, it's probably okay with non-Westerners that. Would do that it. would offend? I mean, I'm offended. I'm I'm very offended. You know, it's it's probably offensive, and it's going to offend all Westerners.
2: These are the same people who threw a fit when like because when white people were buying kimonos, and then actual Japanese kimono makers are like, no, we, it's just clothing, and we are happy to sell. Yeah. kimonos to westerners because
0: that enables us to stay in business and it's not offensive here come on man i mean you, you go to japan and you've got um you've got glorious pagodas written written histories that go back thousands of years um next to the giant gundam statue
2: well we my son like we my son Where, like, my, where, my, son, where my son serving in peru i'm gonna go pick him up and buy a hat because it's one of the supposedly it's like some of the best hats in the world so yeah. i'm gonna go culturally appropriate me a hat <laughs> I mean,
0: you're the Latin community, so you can.
2: Well, they they put me in this bucket. Yeah.
0: Which is the most insane. Oh, my gosh. We just had Thai food for lunch. Um, You know, maybe we shouldn't have eaten Thai food.
2: To be fair, though, the Portuguese introduced tempura to Japan and the chili to Thailand. Ergo, I'm culturally appropriating it back. Yeah,
0: that's fair. (laughs) That's fair. Okay. Point of all this, guys. And I think you'll see a theme through all three of these These super super bad twitter advice uh pieces that we found um just write what you want and just write it have fun with it enjoy what you're writing um because again if if you're enjoying what you're writing people are going to see that you enjoy what you're writing they're going to enjoy reading it whereas if you're following all these pieces of advice that we see you're going to be writing lame generic you know You know, Diet Coke left in a glass of ice for too long, horrible, terrible soda. Flat. You know, just flat and, you know, tastes like aspartame. Inoffensive. You know, that's all you're going to be writing. And guess what? You're going to be bored writing it, and people are going to be bored reading it. I mean, it'll sell like three whole copies. It'll probably make the New York Times list, though. (laughs) Way to bring it full circle. Nice. All right. that's all the time we have for you today. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, if you have any questions or if you find any super awful Twitter advice, feel free to shoot it our way and we'll be happy to uh, bad Twitter voice it. This is the Writer Dojo. See you on the next one.
2: Writer Dojo is Steve Diamond and Larry Korea, Produced by Jack Wilder and Bear
0: and Hair Studios. Theme song, "Word Mercenaries by Craig Nivo. New episodes come out every Wednesday wherever you stream your content. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can help support us by going to
2: anchor.fm/slash writer dojo, by leaving a five-star rating and review, and by helping to spread the word. To advertise on the writer
0: dojo, email ads at writerdojo.com. All questions and comments can be emailed to questions at writerdojo.com.
2: I'm offended I'm,
0: I'm very offended you know it's, it's probably offensive and it's going to offend all westerners hashtag
1: raiding community